Isaiah 9, 2, and 6-7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know, the last time I was with you was two weeks ago, and I began by telling you about the French atheist who had a strong disdain for organized religion and a Jewish musician who didn't celebrate the birth of Jesus at all, who worked together at the request of a priest in a local parish an awful long time ago. They worked together to put together a Christmas carol that would be sung by this church on Christmas Eve way back in the 1840s. The song that they produced, this unlikely pair, is the song we sang earlier this morning, O Holy Night. A beautiful song. A song that I mentioned has had global success and even global significance since its composition, not just because it's been sung across many generations, not even because it's sung in many different languages, but you remember the last time it's even rumored to have stopped a war on Christmas Eve between the Germans and the French, where they momentarily pushed pause to give each other time to celebrate because of the singing of this song and how it so moved the hearts of these soldiers in the midst of battle. But did you know that it even, this song was the first song ever sung or played over radio waves? It happened on Christmas Eve in 1906 by the inventor and professor Reginald Fessenden, who after he completed reading from Luke's gospel, the Christmas narrative, to the shock and amazement of so many people who were listening in across the eastern seaboard, expecting just the Morse code they were so accustomed to. Instead, they heard a voice of a man, as if it were an angel or messenger from God, reading the Christmas story, and then picking up his violin to play the first song ever played over radio waves, and it was this song, O Holy Night. Pretty incredible. Now, that was made possible because of an American who had come along who decided to translate this French poem into English sometime before. In fact, it was about 50 years before that moment in time when a man by the name of John Sullivan Dwight had heard and read the French carol and felt so compelled to translate it into English, being a musician and a minister himself. In fact, Mr. Dwight was an abolitionist, working hard to bring an end to slavery in America. And five years before the start of the Civil War, he would open up this French poem and decide to translate it into English. And he was compelled, yes, this is why he translated it, compelled, yes, by the first verse of the song, because it's beautiful. That the world had long laid in sin and a pattern of brokenness, air opining is how he would word it. And that when Jesus appeared, it brought the dawn of a new and glorious morn where the souls of all men would feel their worth, seeing their value to God, to God regardless of race or class or creed. It's true. It wasn't the first verse, though, that really moved him. It was actually a later verse that compelled him to end up translating this into English, this very popular song that would be sung by residents and even soldiers from the northern states during the Civil War, often singing it. 
Here's the verse that so compelled him. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chain shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we with all within us praise his holy name. It's beautiful and it's understandable why someone who is so determined to help free people from bondage would be so united with, so compelled by the words of this old French poem and determined to bring it to the United States in order for it to be a part of that cause of bringing equality because the song is capturing the truth of Christmas. One of the truths of Christmas, what we celebrate at Christmas, we're celebrating that God was making a new family with himself now at the head of the table as the head of that family. Let's be clear that the message of the Bible is clear from beginning to end that God wants his family back. And in the family that God will father, the table is open to every person, regardless to race or class or creed. And it's what we're talking about this morning as we're doing this little series at Christmas time through these titles that are given by Isaiah the prophet to the promised deliverer that God was saying he would send to rescue creation and to redeem it and restore it. The titles that he gave, you remember, are found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today we dive into the topic of of him as an everlasting father. And just push pause on that. I recognize that this might be maybe the most controversial, or maybe that's not the right word. This might be the most conflicting or or even painful of topics to discuss or messages that, that we could sit through together as a church community here. And it can feel conflicting or controversial even, or painful for some, not because I have some hot take on some divisive political issue that I'm going to give you today. No, it's because we're talking about fathers. And the role of a father can, can be an incredibly painful title or topic for some of us to work through. And, and if that's you today, where you, you feel already, if, if this is what we're talking about, is the the everlasting God, this this eternal Father, an everlasting Father, if that's what we're discussing, for some of you, I want you to hear me say that I want to be gentle and careful not to trigger you today. And instead, I've really been praying this weekend that, that throughout the weekend, I've been praying that God would comfort you and begin to heal the hurt and wound maybe that you carry in your heart. Because I realize for some of you, when talking about the the father figure in your life, there's hurt there because there's an absence there, because your father's departed already. And, and that's a difficult thing to process and to work through. That's, for some of you, the pain that you feel in a moment like this. And so to think of God as a father is a hard thing to feel. For so many others, though, there's a deep and painful wound connected to, created by the father that was in your life. And those wounds can make it very difficult to see God clearly and to celebrate it all that God identifies himself as a father in scripture. In my own life, I'm very thankful to have a healthy relationship with my dad. It's a huge blessing in my adult life, but I've told you before, it wasn't always that way. 
My dad was a very busy man and often a very stressed out man. And that stress seemed to create in him a pot that was at a low simmer where it didn't take much for that pot to boil over when we were young as kids. And because of that, my father didn't seem always very approachable. There wasn't always a ton of warmth. It seemed at times my experience as a little boy was that he was an angry figure in my life who's someone that I feared. And I began to project those things onto God, assuming that if God's a father, then he's not a safe person. He's a terrifying person. He's an entity that's bigger than me, that's, that's maybe judicial, and that's waiting with a gavel to slam it down and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Now, I watched, though, as God transformed my dad's life personally, watching my dad's life and heart shift by the power of God working in his life and becoming such a different man, that that so shifted the way that I began to view God as my father as well. But I realized for some of you, when you think of a father, you you think of descriptors and adjectives even like gentle or kind or or funny. You you think of imagery like playing catch or, or cuddles or long walks that come to mind for you. But for others, maybe who are present, when they think of a father, it's words like absent or distracted or disinterested or unreliable. Things like dishonest or selfish or cold, even cruel or maybe even abusive. Those are the terms that would come to mind. And I I know for me, there are people that I deeply love who have been so deeply wounded by their fathers that it left them finding themselves withdrawing and pulling back from the imagery of God as a father because it no longer felt like a safe thing. I mean, even for my wife, Lindsay, and I share this with her permission, uh, her, her birth dad is a drug addict, has been since before she was born and has never cleaned up. And so for her, the imagery of a father was something that it took a period of time for her to even warm up to because when she thought of God as a father, the imagery that she was seeing was shaped by the experience of what it was like to have a dad who was absent and strung out on drugs. It was my own mother who I remember growing up, her voicing that her dad rarely, if ever, expressed any affection or love for her. And that combined with then her experience growing up in the Roman Catholic Church that for her was not a good experience. She, she once referred to it as seeing God as a great fly swatter in the sky. That's the imagery that was shaped for her of God, a father in heaven. I mean, for a couple that mentored Lindsay and I when we were newlyweds, this was the struggle in their home. The wife had been abused by her father. And because of that, the idea of God as a father was a very difficult thing to swallow. It was something for Lindsay and I was just reminded of this week. We had had a friend who was over with us and who was standing in our kitchen just with tears streaming down her cheeks as she said, you know, my father abandoning our family when we were just children took on a new form of pain when I had my own children. Because I couldn't imagine feeling the kind of love I felt for my own children and being able to walk away and never look back. But somehow my dad did that to me. Now, I don't have to convince any of you, especially you who maybe have a wound in your heart from your father, I don't have to convince you of just how significant the role of a father is in a person's life. I don't have to convince you, especially those of you who have been wounded. But please hear me say this. Every earthly father, no matter how patient and kind or no matter how indifferent or cruel they may be, they are just a broken representation of God who is a good father. Only he is truly the good or perfect father. Lindsay and I often joke and comment to each other when looking at our kids that one day our kids will end up in therapy 
And we just want to do our best, this is what we say to each other, let's just do our best to not recreate the same reasons that maybe we had from our family of origin, that that would be the reasons that they go to therapy, because we at least know those ones. We're not aware of the rest of our issues, though, because we realize that we're broken people, too. And we might try our best, but we know that we are imperfect and and far from, from doing a perfect job and raising our kids. But please hear me, our good Heavenly Father is everything we would have dreamed of as a child, or still any expectation we could even have as adults of what a good father could be and really should be. That's who he is. And so let's quickly chat through three things or three aspects to this title that's given to the promised deliverer that he would be the everlasting father. Those three things are the controversy of it. The second is the cost of it. And the third is the comfort that comes from it. So the idea, that the promise that he would come and become known as the everlasting father. First, the controversy of God being our father. Now, there is both a theological and a personal controversy in this title. If first you consider the theological one, Isaiah the prophet, he's writing these words to the people of God who become, in, become determined once again to dethrone God and enthrone self in place of God. They're determined to self-govern. They're determined to live their lives as they determine rather than as someone else might instruct them. That rebellion in the heart of man finds its roots way back at the Garden of Eden itself with the original sin that took place there. And Isaiah will write them this long prophecy, writing to tell them of the looming judgment that's the byproduct of their rebellion and determination to reject God and enthrone self instead. Isaiah will also write, not just of looming judgment though, he will also write reassuring the people that God would not ultimately forsake them once and for all. He would instead send a promised future deliverer, a king who would make everything right again and establish a reign of peace that all of creation could enjoy. As we've said before in this little Christmas series, Isaiah's prophesying things that were horrific and yet things that were simultaneously hopeful. Horrific about the looming judgment, but then hopeful about God's faithfulness to still deliver him. And that hope would be a bright light amidst the darkness, Isaiah 9 chapter 2 tells you. That hope, Isaiah 9 6 begins to tell you, was a person. It wasn't just a movement. It wasn't some new thing. That hope was a person. It was Jesus. And Isaiah will make clear in his prophecy how he'd come. It's in chapter 7, if your Bible's still open, in verse 4, where it says that a virgin will conceive. This is how that promised one will come. It's a promise also of what he would do. It's, it's here in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, where it talks about he'll, he'll establish a reign of peace. Isaiah 53 will tell you how he will establish his reign of peace. He will establish it at great cost to himself. Like any other person who's ever led a new movement, it would begin with a violent act of bloodshed, but it would not be him shedding the blood of his enemies. It would instead be him allowing his own blood to be shed on behalf of, for his enemies. He would suffer in our place. That's the what he would do. Even who he'd be is what Isaiah is answering. He would be, chapter 7, verse 14, he would be known as Emmanuel, God with us. He would be known here, Isaiah 9, 6, as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Isaiah answers answers all of that. But, But here's the theological controversy. 
It's a really strange thing that Isaiah says that a son will be given to us and that we're going to call him our everlasting father. Isaiah is calling the fulfillment of God's promise from the garden, the promised savior himself. He's calling him both a son and a father here. Now, you need to know this is not Isaiah making a doctrinal statement about the nature of the Trinity. He is not saying that Jesus is the father with no distinction between the two. That's not his point. Jesus himself will come and clearly talk about these things, including statements like, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I and am in him. There is undoubtedly a deep connection between the Son and the Father, and yet there is still a clear distinction between the two. That is the mystery of the Trinity. Our statement of faith as a church echoes the long-embraced Orthodox belief that, and here I'll quote it to you, here's our statement of faith, that we believe that there is one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's existent in three persons, not merely in one. That's not what Isaiah is saying here. I'll quote to you from the words of a wise modern sage, our very own Danny Jack, who had worked very hard this week to prepare to teach on this topic, but then got the gnarly flu bug from his kids this weekend, is home experiencing the plague. Uh, but he did pass along his notes to, uh, to me to use as a resource, which I sure appreciated. But here's how he said it. I, I really appreciated how he said it. He said, Isaiah is not saying Jesus is the same person as the Father. Isaiah is talking about the eternal nature of Christ. Isaiah the prophet liked talking about eternity. His book is full of eternity this and forever that statements. And here he is revealing that the son that was to be given would be one who exists outside of time. So in that sense, this title is a statement about the deity of Christ. For who can exist for all of eternity outside the thing that we call time other than God himself? He is our everlasting father. So think this through. Here's, here's uh, the controversy when it comes to theology that, that's being stated here that we can get caught up in. This does indirectly make a claim to the deity of the coming Savior. But that's something that was already established in the two previous titles that are given to the promised Messiah. That he would be our wonderful counselor and simultaneously our mighty God. It's referenced to, think about it, what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. It's, it's the combination of, of both humanity and deity that existed within Jesus. That Isaiah said he would be a child being born, but also simultaneously a son who is given. Think about it. Yes, he was born on a specific date in history. However, he did not begin there. He was given from heaven because he preexisted that date on a calendar. Yes, Jesus is human, but he's also simultaneously divine. He is a wonderful counselor, having endured the human experience, but he's also the almighty God. He's divine and eternal. And this is clearly saying that he's fathered eternity. In fact, one of the ways that this can linguistically be translated, and some of your Bibles might even read it this way, is that Jesus would be known as the father of eternity. Something New Testament authors would highlight, they would highlight the pre-existence of Jesus. Quoting from Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, here's how Paul said it. He said, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him, by Jesus, think of this, and for him. 
It's the writer of Hebrews, whoever he or she may have been in chapter one, they say it this way. God, who at various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Yes, it is an indirect claim to Jesus' deity that the coming Savior was someone, yes, who, who would be human and divine. And it's clearly stating here that he fathered eternity that he is pre-existent and a part of the creation of the world itself. But the other thing that this is doing theologically, it's forecasting something. It's forecasting that Jesus would be the revelation and expression, please hear this, of the Father's heart within creation. Jesus would be the revelation and expression. He would become the substance of the Father's heart walking on planet Earth. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus would say this to his friends. He'd say, have I been with you for so long and yet you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father also. Jesus was making a statement that if you're seeing him, you're seeing the heart of God. You want to know what God is like? Well, then look at Jesus. Look at Jesus nurturing care for the poor and the broken. Look at Jesus' patience and enduring love for people that he encountered. Look at the attention and affection that he gave to even a blind beggar that the crowd around him had discarded and passed by. Look at the unfathomable depths of his grace and forgiveness as he would go and embrace a cross. We're seeing a father's perfect heart for creation embodied by Jesus and given as an example of it. Think of it this way. As I was driving here this morning, I started thinking of the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. Think of this, Jesus as an Isaac in that imagery. The story tells us that Isaac was a young lad that in Hebrew just means an unwed man. He wasn't just a little boy that Abraham would overpower in order to show his obedience and worship of God by putting his son onto an altar. Abraham's an old man at this point in time. Isaac would have been at the very least a willing participant in this whole process, who would have had to embody the heart of his father that was saying, my God is worthy of worship, even if that worship cost me everything, son. And then his son would find himself seated atop of an altar, able to overpower his father and do what he pleased, but willing to submit himself to it and lay there. It's Jesus who would come, taking the shadow and making a substance out of it, who could have, gone of his own power and walked, who in the Garden of Gethsemane would say, is there any other way but not my will yours be done? Jesus would then embody the heart of the Father. He'd be the revelation and expression of the heart of the Father for all of creation to see when he so clearly by turning towards a cross would move forward, fulfilling the heart's desire of the Godhead in totality. Do you understand this? That what it's saying of Jesus is that Jesus would give us a clear image into the heart of eternal God. You see, the message of the manger is the same as the message of the cross. It's the same as the message of the Bible from beginning to end. And that's that God wants his family back. That a father's heart longs to bring you home again. And Jesus will make a way for that to happen. You see, there's a theological controversy, but there's also a personal or practical one. That's the other thing to consider. I mean, when you think about it, think of all the religions in the world in our modern present setting. Think this through. 
Even today, no other religious group in the world addresses God as Father. Think of Jesus. Jesus comes along, though, addressing God as just that, as his Father, which was shocking, which was something that would have turned heads for people. And then Jesus does more than just invite us to do the same. He takes it a step further to instruct us and teach us to do it also, didn't he? He didn't merely invite us. You too can address God as a father. When he taught them to pray, what did he say? He said, pray in this manner, our father in heaven. It was provocative. It was shocking. It's unheard of. It's unthinkable. It still today remains to be one of the most unique things about the Christian message itself is that you can approach God as a child would approach their father with confidence that they'll find a warm embrace as they approach. You see, for some, that's so very controversial because of maybe the wound that you've carried in here today that you can't wrap your mind around the image of God and and approaching him as a father and expecting warmth and an embrace like that. But for all of us, there's a controversy here that we'd have to agree that 2,000 years later, this still feels like a scandal that Jesus would not only invite us, he would instruct us to approach God with with the confidence of a child who would run into the arms of their loving father. That we get invited into this identity as sons also. Well, we'll quickly track through these last two, but, but this is the everlasting father we're talking about. And we're talking about there's a controversy of God being our father. It's theological, but it's also a practical scandal of God, yes, making himself known, but also making himself available as a father. And Jesus would come showing us the fatherly affection of God himself. That's the controversy. Here's the cost. And you know what it is. The cost of God being our father. The cost is what we observe and celebrate this time of year at Christmas. In fact, if you have your Bible still open, why don't you flip to Galatians in the New Testament, chapter 4. It's a, it's a, a book of the Bible that in the new year we're going to begin walking through together as a church. So I'm not going to spend time really opening this up. There's even fun Greek wording here that's, that would be great to dive into, but we'll save that for in the new year. But Galatians chapter 4 is where I'd encourage you to turn because it, it talks about the cost being Jesus' incarnation. The cost of God becoming our Father was the incarnation, that Jesus would become embodied in flesh. The, the simple definition of incarnation is that he put the skin on it. It's pastor and author John Tyson, he wrote and said it this way. He said, Christ was so compelled by his love for us that he left his position of glory to identify with and include us in his divine love. He left a throne of splendor for the womb of an unwed teenage girl. He left the comfort of heaven for the mess of a stable. He left the applause of the heavenly hosts for the obscurity of the carpenter shop. Oh, he left the adoration of the angels for the insults of the crowd. And he left the glory of eternity for the shame of a cross. He took on the nature of a servant and humbled himself out of love for us. My friends, this is what we remember and celebrate at Christmas. Not just that Jesus came, but he came emptying himself, becoming like us in order to suffer and die for us. And here's how Paul wrote about it as he wrote the Galatians in chapter four, beginning in verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might be receiving the adoption of sons. 
The fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, the word fullness, my understanding of it is that it's a nautical term that talks about a ship that's fully stocked and packed and manned and ready to go. It's telling you that everything was set. The stage was set. This was not just a random point in time where God looked out at creation and said, well, now seems about right. No, this wasn't a random point or even a specific point. This was a strategic moment in history. The fullness of time had come. God waited for a precise moment in history to release from heaven the answer to the great longing of his heart and of humanity's heart to release to us Jesus. When you think about it strategically from heaven's perspective, as we look back in hindsight's kind of 2020, the world was, yes, dominated by the Romans, but it also was, in a sense, united by them because they were united under one world language. They were also united by Roman roads that, that brought things to and from different communities, cities, villages, and even countries with much greater ease than any other point in human history. And even during this era, there was something known as Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome, so that people were capable and able to travel from point A to point B. God did not arrive before that moment had happened, so that as Hebrew-speaking people in their Hebrew language would write more Hebrew scriptures, that only they would really receive the revelation of what God was doing in Christ. No, he waited until the time, although it involved great darkness and pain, there was a light that would shine bright in that moment where the whole world so quickly could get the message in their own language with people easily getting it to them of what Jesus had done and why Jesus had come from heaven to the earth. This is the culmination of human history, the pinnacle of all of human history, like sands in an hourglass that are finally filling it all the way up every moment in human history led to, pointed to, climaxed in the arrival of Jesus that Christmas morning. But don't miss what he says here to them about why Jesus came. He came to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, he said, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Oh, why did he come? What was the cost involved? Well, he came to redeem us. The imagery really is linguistically. It's the imagery of him purchasing us off of the slave block so that we might receive the adoption of sons. He purchased us so that he could adopt us. You see, Jesus would arrive in that little manger on Christmas morning, leaving all the splendor and glory and safety of heaven so that the shadow of the cross could loom over top of that cradle that he'd be laid in. So that the father could once again embrace wayward sons and daughters for all of eternity. Well, there's a controversy here, I realize, in God being our father, because in Jesus, God is making himself known and making himself available to us as a father. Oh, but there's a cost for him to do that. And it cost Christ a cross to fulfill the desire of the Godhead. But that leaves us, doesn't it, with incredible comfort. This is how we wrap up. Oh, the comfort of God being our Father. In fact, that passage that we just read moments ago from the book of Galatians tells us of something that the Holy Spirit then begins to do in our heart once the Son has rescued and redeemed us, making way for us to once again be back in the Father's loving care the Holy Spirit begins to do something. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, beginning to cry something. 
Developing in your hearts the confidence to cry something, to cry out, Abba. Oh, Dad, Daddy. To think of God as Father, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What God begins to do by the work of his Holy Spirit in your life as you receive Jesus and and appropriate his amazing work and gift of the cross over the, the, the doorposts of your own heart and life, like the imagery of the Passover and the plagues that came in Egypt, when we look by faith towards Jesus, the spotless lamb whose blood was shed, then our life is covered by that blood. He would take what was wrong about me and be punished for it. I would take what was right about him and be blessed for it. Made a son when he became a slave in my place. But when that transfer took place, I also received his spirit at work in my life. Yes, to transform me, but it's beautiful. It tells you what part of that transformation is. A part of that transformation is that you begin to recognize your acceptance by God. You begin to recognize the love that he has for you as a perfect father for his beloved child. That your identity begins to sink into your heart. And your confidence and and your access to and favor with not just a God, but a Father in heaven is the transforming work that he begins to do in your heart. See, this is a beautiful comfort. And I believe that that beautiful comfort has the power to begin to heal even the most wounded of hearts, who even in a time of year like this are trying to celebrate the gift of Christmas while feeling the longing for the one that they had as an earthly father who's departed. Or for some of you, maybe, who sit here to try to consider this, knowing that you're deeply wounded from your father, from decisions that he made. But I believe it's telling you here that he can begin to heal even the most wounded of hearts. In fact, your Bible tells you the way that it ends. It ends by showing you what God has desired all along. He desired that you would be found safely united with your perfect father who adopted you as his child forever. It's Revelation chapter 21. It's at the very end of the book where it says it this way. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. This is God's great goal goal for you, for me. It's not necessarily what we could do for him. It's just him having us. Do you see this? This is the great goal of God, that you would be his son. Yes, he's king. Uh, Again, over a redeemed and restored creation where Jesus will pronounce, Behold, look, I've made everything new again. And part of what he made new is the relationship between you and your God. Where your God looks at you and says, And I have what I've always wanted. I have you as a son. A son is a full-fledged heir of all things. It's telling you that you have a heavenly father that will hold nothing back from you. That's the promise of it. Why don't you close your Bible? You know, I've told you before that something happened in my own heart the moment I became a father. I think it's something that most parents attest to. It's it's really a miracle when you think about it. I mean, when I became a dad, I understood so many things from a different lens and in a different light than ever before. I mean, the idea of like sleeping like a baby, that imagery was shot for me after bringing a baby home but it also dramatically shifted my understanding of love. Because love for me, the, the, the greatest form of love I'd experienced in my life was the love that I had for my wife. And, and she is lovable, 
But it's still an ongoing process and decision for us to choose to love each other. She makes it easy by being lovable, but it's still a choice and a process. But then my kids were born. And I remember Riley being born as, a, as just a newborn baby in that first hour that she was alive, the first time that they handed her to me. I remember holding her that first hour she was there, and she looked like she'd just gone 12 rounds with Mike Tyson. I mean, her eyes were swollen shut, and you know, they wonder why we have trust issues. People are like, birth is beautiful, it's amazing, and it's horrific. It's terrifying. <laughs> but then I looked down at Riley, and her little swollen eyes opened up and looked back at me. And I just knew that I loved her. Like had such an overwhelming sense and feeling and commitment of love to her in that moment. And it was amazing. There was no process involved. There was no discussion to be had. I just loved her naturally, instinctively, without measure or reason. And I loved her that way because she was mine. She was my child, my daughter. She didn't have to earn my love. She'll never have to earn my love. Because I already loved her before she could ever even try. Well, the scriptures, it says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Do you hear me say, do you, do you see it? Do you experience the comfort uh, of knowing, that the comfort of experiencing God as a good, as a perfect father for you. I realize that the truth is, for some of you, you don't experience the comfort connected to that. The comfort connected to God being your perfect father, because you, you don't yet feel that you can really engage with God as your father. Because a father just doesn't feel safe. I think that's a chuckle that's telling me Riley's swollen eyes just appeared. They did, Yes. <laughs> For some of you, you just feel like, I haven't experienced this because a father doesn't feel safe for me. And if you really struggle with the imagery of God as a father, can you just remember this morning that every earthly father is a broken shadow of the one perfect parent? And please remember also that God didn't merely reveal his heart as that of a father. He revealed it also simultaneously as having the, the nurturing, affectionate care of a mother too. Remember that you can begin to have your heart healed as Jesus comforts you and as he uses the body, his body, the church, to be given as a gift and blessing that can begin to even reparent you. Here you can find amongst the church, God's people, you can find the gift of a healthy family. Oh yes, still imperfect. Oh yes, still with brokenness and flaws. It's true of all of us. But in the family of God, you can experience the love of God through the voice and the presence of others, of his people, of his body. And their presence, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can begin a healing process, I think, even in the most wounded of hearts. Oh, but maybe you'd say, but Trevor, I really can't approach God when I think of him as a father. There's just too much pain there. Well, then remember that God himself would twice in the Old Testament choose a mother's love as the best illustration, the best comparison, the best example of the divine tenderness that he had for creation and for his children. It's Isaiah 49. Let me read it to you. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the child of her womb? Surely they might forget, yet I will never forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. It's Isaiah 66 that says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. 
Remember even Jesus standing over the city of Jerusalem moved with emotion. Do you remember what he said? He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you near. And like a mother hen would gather her chicks under her wings, I've longed to bring you to myself, but you haven't let me. These statements where God takes on what we would think of as the nurturing care of a mother have nothing to do with anatomy. It is our gracious God promising nurturing care, that of a mother to his people. It's beautiful. But then you might say, well, Trevor, it wasn't just my dad. It's my mom, too. I just the whole idea of God, a parental figure, it's a terrifying thing for me. Then remember how Jesus would also describe himself as our brother that we together are co-heirs with Christ, sharing in his inheritance. But maybe some of you, you'd still stop me and say, Trevor, it was so bad, so broken. Even my whole family, even, even my brothers, even my siblings were hurtful and vengeful. They were abusive and vindictive. And I can't think of God as some sibling, as some cosmic brother. It's too hard. It's too hurtful. It feels too vulnerable. I can't approach God with confidence. Oh, then remember what he said, Jesus himself. He said that he would be a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Oh, that he would would prove his loyalty to you in such a powerful way, proving that his words were true all along when he said that greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And that is precisely what he's done. He's given even his own life for you, proving that his love for you, the bond that's there, that, that, that it's so very deep. But some of you, you've been so wounded in life that you'd think, boy, even though, even if it were just a friend, that imagery, I I feel so isolated. I feel so broken down. This world has chewed me up and spit me out that, Trevor, I'm so disoriented. I feel like I've lost my sense of self. Where could I even begin? Because even my friends have betrayed me. They've sabotaged my life or my career or even my joy. They've taken it all from me. Then may I say to you, If that's you, where you look in every direction, say, I'm just so hurt, I don't know where to begin to look. In all of your hurt, please hear me. In all of your pain and all of your fear, know that there is at least someone, one person, who understands you because he suffered precisely like you, if that's how you feel. You have someone who knows even how to comfort you. Because Jesus cried out to his father and did not hear the father's voice echo back in mercy. It's because Jesus was rejected even by his own mother, who along with his brothers thought that he had lost his mind and embarrassed the family and came to retrieve him. Jesus too was betrayed and destroyed because of his loyal love for his friends, friends that turned on him when they could no longer get anything from him. Oh dear hurt person, do you see the hope, the peace, the joy of Christmas, of Jesus? Do you see that you're greatly loved by God and even understood by him if you're so wounded? Jesus is who you need today. Jesus can be that safe person for you. Jesus can be where you begin to find yourself again. Jesus who is the one who can begin to rebuild your life from the ground up again. Jesus, your advocate and high priest. Jesus, your comfort, your strength, your peace and your hope. Jesus, your forever savior. Jesus, you're all in all. We look the direction of Jesus at Advent. 
And for many of you, you know that Advent's the time of year where we, we, we think back and celebrate in commemoration Jesus' first Advent, his first arrival, but we also do it with a longing, eager expectation of a future Advent. We look forward to a future day, and that's the truth. We long today to be with the one who showed us with clarity the heart of the eternal Father. He demonstrated in his care for the poor and maligned, for the weak and the weary. He demonstrated it most clearly by embracing a cross. And those father-like qualities are everlasting in his heart. Think about this. He will never grow tired of caring for us. My weakness will never deplete his patience and care for me. 